hello, and welcome to the Hidden Archives. I'm your host, Nicole Clark. Paying homage to Guillermo del Toro, we borrow his words for this warning. In a world where we are so pragmatic and materialistic, fear is the only emotion that allows even a sophisticated person to believe in something beyond. So a sophisticated person would be wise to heed this message. If you choose to enter the hidden archives, if you choose to study the tomes, if you choose to take this journey with me, you do so at your own risk. Profanity and disturbing content may follow. This is your warning. The life of a single parent can often be difficult and fraught with challenges. It's a delicate balance to maintain a healthy home life and still be able to work enough to support your small family. Often people in this situation just need a little outside help. But what happens when this help goes beyond what we are capable of accepting? In tonight's story, some divine intervention may be more than what our character has bargained for. All right. I guess I'll just tell you everything and let you make your judgment. I know what I did was the right thing. It was the right thing. I was sitting at home after a long shift. They're all long anymore. Sixteen hours or more in the back of an ambulance. We used to have downtime between calls, but that's a thing of the past. You spend twenty or so years as an EMT, and you tend to see changes. God, I was tired. Add in being a single parent on top of that, spending every waking moment trying to care for a 12-year-old boy, and you can understand the drain. Don't get me wrong, I'm not making excuses. There are no excuses for doing the right thing. I don't need to justify what happened. I'm just explaining what happened and how. So let me go on. As I was saying, I was exhausted. I just needed a cup of Earl Grey to enjoy for half an hour while I watched some shitty sitcom rerun. Maybe it was Seinfeld? I can't fucking remember. I wasn't even paying attention to the show. I was zoned out and drinking my tea, which I had poured at the most scorching temperature I could. And I didn't even let it steep. Who has the time? I told my son Al, that's Alfred, to go take a bath and clean up. Of course he was capable. He didn't need my supervision. And I was counting on that. A bath would take him at least 30 minutes. Maybe more if he had already discovered himself. I was about that age when I did. I don't fucking know. I told him that he had time and I wouldn't bother him unless he needed me for something. I just knew that all of it would give me time to decompress after coming home from four days on. Maybe it was five. Lord, I can't remember. So much happened that it's blocking my exact recall. Okay, where was I? Oh, yeah. I told Al to go take a bath. He must have known something was wrong. 
Maybe he could divine it, or had some sort of precognition or something. Maybe things were already in motion, and it was affecting him somehow. He normally isn't or wasn't that aware of others. But anyway, he turned to me when I sent him back and said, Rod? We were on a first-name basis, as I figured there was no need for titles like Dad since his mother died. Anyway, he says, Rod, are you all right? I'm fine, champ, I said. I've just had a hard shift. Why don't you go clean up and give me a few minutes to collect myself, all right? Okay. Should I leave the door cracked open? What if I need you? Don't worry about it, buddy. I'll keep the TV volume low. Just shout, okay? He nodded and ran back to his room to find some clothes or something. Another minute later, I heard the bathroom door latch and the water in the tub start. I must have dozed off because, next thing I knew, I was startled by some bass-heavy music from the TV. But it wasn't what had initially stirred me. That was something else, a different noise. I hated the idea of losing my me time, or of interrupting Al, but something was wrong. I still heard the water running in the bathroom from the tub, but nothing else. So I shouted back down the hall, Al, are you okay, buddy? There was no response. My heart was racing. Was it from the start that the show's end credits had given me? Or was it something worse? I lifted myself from the chair and slowly turned towards the hall. Al, is everything okay in there? I shouted again. No response. I walked slowly to the bathroom door and put my ear to it. All I could hear was the tap continuously pouring a torrent of water that sounded like it was about to breach the brim of the tub. Al, I don't care what you're doing in there, I just need you to answer me. Can I come in? I'll block my eyes. I waited for a response, but none came. By this point, it must have been four or five minutes since my start awake, but it felt like an hour. I could hear the TV in the next room. The commercial break had finished and the next episode of the show had started. It must have been Seinfeld. I'd know that theme music anywhere. Who wouldn't? I keep digressing. I don't know why I keep doing that. I'll just keep going. So I got no response from Al. At this point, I knew something was wrong. What if he had a seizure or slipped? Or what if the bath was too hot and he put himself in shock? I don't know what, but like I said, you don't spend so many years as an EMT without seeing some shit and being able to pick up on it. It's just an instinct you develop. So, I turned the doorknob. It was unlocked, strict policy in our house. And true to my word, I covered my eyes. I expected... No, that's not right. I wanted, hoped 
to hear him chastise me for entering. But it was just the goddamn tap again. That's all I heard. With so much trepidation and reservation, I finally uncovered my eyes. Can you imagine the scene? Jesus, fuck, it was awful. The first thing I saw was blood on the sink. The sink basin itself was actually cracked. Then I noticed the water on the floor, a mixture of pink and clear. The tub hadn't overflowed or anything. It was just splashed on the floor. It all happened in slow motion. Maybe for real, maybe it just seemed that way. Who knows with what happened in the next few minutes. So I was just standing there in shock. I could see Al in the tub face down. His shirt was off, but otherwise he was still clothed. He must have fallen trying to take off his sock after he removed his shirt. One sock was off and the other was still on. I have a picture-perfect recall of that moment, even if I don't of anything else that happened. Staring at the tub, I could see the water was turning red. Al was face down again, but there were no bubbles coming from his face. He wasn't moving. I finally sprang into action. I don't know why, but the first thing I did was shut off the tub. Maybe just one of those habits? Like I said, I, I can't explain. But it was a quick motion, and then I pulled Al from the tub. The water was actually freezing. Maybe that helped me in the next step. Maybe it was a result of what was about to happen. So many things I just don't know. And I understand what the reports say. Just let me tell it all without interruption. I promise it will all make sense when I've finished. I had Al on the floor in front of the tub. My training and expertise kicked in. I dropped all of my emotions at the door and started resuscitation. There was so much blood and he was so cold. But I continued. What else could I do? What would you do? Although there was a lot of blood, he wasn't actively bleeding. This was my first cue that his heart had actually stopped. So I took his pulse and confirmed, and started CPR and mouth-to-mouth. I had to get him going again. I had to clear the water from his lungs. After that, I could attend to any bleeding and call for help. It seemed fucking hopeless, though. I was about to give up when there was this... I don't know what to call it. A, a wave, maybe? Everything started to shimmer and ripple. It was like that wave spread out from Al's body. Next thing I know, he was breathing again. He sat up and leaned into me. Dad, what happened? Why am I wet? And why can't I remember? Am I okay? Jesus, he was cognizant. 
I feared brain damage, but here he was talking to me. It's okay, buddy. You just had a spill. L let me check you out. I need to see if you're hurt. But... But I feel okay. It's not negotiable. Just... Just let me work, alright? Can you do that? Let me see your head. He relaxed a bit, and I checked for serious trauma. There was still red everywhere, but it seemed mixed with water. I didn't find any open wounds. I was sifting through his brown hair, prodding here and there. Does this hurt? I would ask. He said it didn't. He seemed okay. I made him agree to go to the emergency room, got him dried off and dressed in dry clothes, and we set off. Long story short, the doctors checked him out and said that he didn't look any worse for wear. Now, I'm not religious necessarily, but I know in my heart that it was divine intervention. It had to be. Although he survived this incident, the next few years were, well, they were tough. Very trying times. I suppose the worst of it started around his 15th birthday. That was the first time I got to meet a lot of his friends. They were, to put it lightly, an odd bunch. They seemed too politically motivated for kids that couldn't even vote. Apparently, Al was their leader. Between this time and the accident, Al had gotten a bit weird. It didn't happen immediately, just over time. His grades in school were okay, all except for social studies anyway, but he was still a bit of a troublemaker. He seemed angry all the time. He was getting into trouble at school, and I was told that he was getting involved with activities and people that might lead him to a life of crime. So after meeting some of his friends, I had a talk with them. Just the normal, is everything okay, spiel, and... You know you can tell me anything, right? But he just said that he was fine. But no, everything is not okay. And he was going to do something about it at some point. How the fuck was I supposed to know what this meant? I was a single father, not a psychic. Oh god, he was right though. He did try to change things and do something about it. He grew increasingly reserved. Hell, he even became hostile towards me. It was like he was being controlled by some unseen source. Fuck if I could connect the dots at this point. There was just something off, you know? I thought he needed space. To be left alone. <laughs> well, I guess I was right in a way. When he was around 16, there was a period of time where he disappeared for a few weeks. He kept in touch with me just a little bit, just enough for me not to get involved. But at the same time, I noticed that certain types of crime in our city were blowing up. 
I had that irrational fear that all parents do that told me he might be involved. But, for better or worse, I kept my distance. Maybe he wasn't involved. Maybe he would grow out of it. But I couldn't do anything other than clean up his messes where I could. About that, I remember one time when I responded to the scene of someone who claimed to have been kidnapped and tortured. He wouldn't say why, but he was in pretty bad shape so I didn't push it. The guy was a mess. Compound fracture of his right arm, missing an eye, multiple head traumas including a rather serious concussion. He even said that he had been drowned and resuscitated multiple times. I don't know how he escaped. I don't know how he survived. Somehow, he broke away from his captors and made it to a fast food place nearby to call for help. There was a look of shock on his face when I showed up and he saw me. There was almost a primal fear burning behind his eyes when he looked at me. I thought it was because of his condition until I treated him and he started to trust me. He told me that the person who had tortured him taken a hot spoon and dug out his eye, broke his arm with a bench vice, looked like a younger version of myself. The spitting image of me. Tall and skinny, brown hair left way too long, small birthmark under the right eye that resembled a duck. Just the spitting image of me. The spitting image of Al. I never confronted Al about this. You need to know that, basically, my hands were tied. I mean, it wasn't like I could just walk up to him when he finally returned home and say, Hey there, kiddo. Been torturing anyone almost to death lately? Fuck, I just let it go. But I lost sleep over it for a very long time. I believe I said his grades were good. Yeah. They were so good, in fact, that he got a full-ride scholarship at just 17 to some school overseas. With barely any warning, he dropped out of high school and took off to the school to study biology. I guess he had a plan in place based on his activities as a youth because he dual-majored in chemical engineering. His years in college were few. He graduated at the age of 20 with two PhDs and a master's. Of course, Al never told me. I heard about it from a few of his professors who reached out to me to voice concerns about him. These concerns were justified, though I never told them or anyone. But we all found out how they were justified after less than half a decade. I guess, though I never heard from Al anymore, there was no way for me to contact him. That Al had taken a job with some foreign power to work for their military as some sort of mad scientist. I may be projecting some of my own biases and view of things onto the situation, but really that's what he was. 
a goddamn true-to-life supervillain. Apparently, his penchant for harming people had not faded with time or education. He was worse now than he ever was, and he had the backing of a foreign superpower to fund and promote it. Al was at the center of the war. The weapons he created devastated millions. He came up with mass dispersal mechanisms that could infect an entire continent with biologically engineered disease designed to wipe out specific ethnic groups. Come to think of it, when the war started, the first group of people to be affected by one of Al's weapons was the same ethnicity as the torture victim I responded to that one night. Some of the other innovations credited to my son include chemical agents that tear people apart from the inside. They just turn to goo. Imagine a hell where you feel a burning in your core at first, and then suddenly your eyes erupt from their sockets. But before you can even react to this new development, your bones lose rigidity and your skin melts off to reveal your muscle tissue. Oh, by the way, you're conscious and alert for all of this. That is, until core temp gets damn near boiling point and your head literally explodes. There isn't even a need for such weapons. Why make people suffer like that? Why strip them of their humanity when you can just be merciful and kill them instantly with something like an atom bomb? I'll tell you why. Because a quick death doesn't give you control of the masses like the fear of suffering does. And that is what Al wanted. After six or seven years of global war, Al was able to usurp power from his foreign masters. He did this by threatening to use the weapons that he had helped them develop against them. Imagine weapons so terrible that the mere threat of their use would convince a government to turn power over to an evil genius. The fear they must have felt thinking that if they denied him or killed him, that they would still suffer his immortal wrath. Al was well on his way to developing a global reign of terror, but there were those who stood against him. There were those that had a plan to carefully depose him. There were those that resisted him. Even though he was my son, I was among those ranks. What kind of father wants his own son dead? What kind of father has fantasies of killing his little boy? Lord knows I'll end up in hell for what I've thought, for what I've done. So this is just my audition. I'll just say that I was never given the opportunity to kill my son. Like most people, I was drafted into the offensive against him and his forces. But, unlike most people, I was intensely vetted first. Important people knew that I was his father. I tried to keep it a secret as best I could, 
but there is no stopping information getting to certain people. These people also knew that I might not want him dead. They thought I might try to save him, or attempt to convert him back to a form that resembled a human being. But what they didn't know was that I would have given my left nut to personally put a bullet in his brain. Hence my fare to hell. It probably also helped me to end up where I am now. So I wasn't trusted to be a soldier, but I was eventually cleared to participate in the war effort. Given my training and expertise, I was assigned to be a field medic. They put me in the very country that Al had his base of operations. God knows why, but there I was, tending to Al's victims, a father still cleaning up his son's messes. Honestly, there wasn't a lot for me to do. I spent most of my first deployment giving lethal doses of painkillers to people that hadn't fully succumbed to Al's weapons. Most of them, like the torture victim, looked at me with horror. Some even screamed at the sight of me. A man who looked so much like their eternal tormentor that they feared I was there on his behalf to provide them with more suffering. I often wondered why we never wore masks. I mean, they were mostly biological and chemical weapons that were being used against us. It would have helped me to hide my face and maybe have provided me with some anonymity that would have spared the fear of those poor folks. But I guess they figured that these weapons were so terrible and destructive that, if we had been exposed, any measure against them would have only prolonged our suffering. And funds were likely short for the governments that opposed Al. Every cent needed to be put towards his downfall. If I thought five consecutive 16-hour days in an ambulance were tough, it was no comparison to what my first deployment was like. Fortunately, some people realized this, and we were put out of rotation for a few months after serving, and surviving, for 13 months on the battlefield. My second deployment came only two short months later. Al's base of operations had switched by this point. But not because he had been put on the defensive. Rather, because he was getting ground and wanted a more scenic country from which to operate. I don't know if it was planned or if it was another sort of divine intervention, but I was sent to this new country on my second and final deployment. This country was colder than the last. Previously, it was more tropical. But this new one was very woodsy and snowy. I haven't given the names of the countries because, by this time, no country even had a name. It was either those forces against the terrible reign of Al, or those for it. They were merely numbered coordinates on a map in a war room somewhere. 
so I arrived in this new location with the same orders as before. Treat the mildly wounded, euthanize the severely affected as humanely as possible. It was my luck that my division was dropped in an area not 10 kilometers away from Al's base. I knew I could use this information somehow. But there was a lot of work to do. It isn't even like there were a lot of wounded to treat. Al's weapons were too effective for that. The work was in rationing the drugs, providing just the bare minimum to people to end their suffering. Many of us even started to use the drugs on ourselves. Six of the 15 people in my medical division had overdosed just two weeks into this deployment. It was too much horror to actually take in. I don't blame them. If it wasn't for my stash of Earl Grey tea, I might have even joined them. I mean, I'll be honest. Every now and then, when I would wake up screaming... I would give myself a little fuck-it-all, as we called it, to get back to sleep. But it never became a habit, just a coping mechanism. And I had more to cope with than many. It was this, though, and this motivation that drove me to do what I did next. Over the three months that we were in the country, my division had advanced to within two kilometers of the capital. The opposing forces didn't combat us because they knew we were medical and would provide the same aid to them as we did to our own troops and the locals if they fell victim to Al's wrath. Hell, half of them, or more, were actually secretly on our side. They were just too afraid to stand against such a tyrant. What I did next was probably, under different circumstances, stupid and suicidal. I saw our forces losing the fight, and there were rumors of retreat. This would mean that we would give up, and Al would have global dominance. I couldn't let that happen. I was sitting there contemplating this, drinking my contraband tea, when I felt a weird deja vu. It was like I was back in the time when I was 12, at our home in Denver, the night he had the accident. I was exhausted, drinking my tea about to doze off. One of the women in my division was watching a Seinfeld rerun on her portable device. There was a stream running nearby that sounded a lot like a tub filling. At first I laughed, reminiscing a little bit, thinking about what would have happened if I just sat there that night, like I was this night. I fantasized about just not acting, about letting the tub run over and falling asleep in my chair. But then it hit me. If action versus inaction was the conundrum that had gotten all of us so fucked to begin with, maybe it was the same scenario here at this time. Again, I decided to act. 
I sneaked out of camp and headed towards Al's compound. We were all issued a sidearm, even though I was a medic. I had never used mine, but I hoped to God that this would change that night. I don't know how, but I made it all the way to the base. Maybe his guards had spotted me, but realized what I intended to do. Fuck, maybe they even helped me get there. I don't know, but I finally found myself beside a large palatial compound. Considering our humble beginnings, it seemed likely that Al would want improvement and thus would be inside. With relatively little effort, I made my way inside. It was quiet. There were no guards around. Maybe Al craved the privacy, the very thing that I tried to give him so long ago. Whatever it was, it made my mission easier. I could hear a tap running down a long hall. Quietly and stealthily, I made my way towards this familiar invitation. The hallway was exceptionally dark, but I could see light escaping from beneath the door about halfway down the hall. Upon reaching the door with the light and the tap running, I put my ear up and listened. So much deja vu. I couldn't hear anything but the tap, so I drew my weapon and let myself in quietly and slowly. I glanced around, expecting to be met with some sort of resistance, but there was none. What I was met with was the sight of Al face down in the tub a sight I had seen before, a sight that had, the last time I saw it, inspired so much fear in me. But this time was different. Or was it? I, I was feeling fear, but this time, it was not the same. I feared the opposite of the first time I had found him like this. I was afraid that he was still alive. I was afraid that if I didn't act, he would survive and I would be thwarted. Cautiously, I approached the tub with my gun in my hand. I knelt down beside it and turned the tap off, as I had done once before. I did this with my right hand while still keeping the gun trained on Al with my left but he didn't stir when the water stopped. Perhaps he was dead. Perhaps he had drowned like he should have done so many years before. Perhaps I didn't have to kill my baby boy. But I was smarter than that. As I got back to my feet, I kept the gun aimed at him. There was no taking chances. I had to fire shot into the back of his head. I had to empty the magazine into him, reload, then do it again. He was my responsibility. And all of his terror was my responsibility. Only a good father would make sure there was an end to it. I aimed my gun and covered my eyes. 
covered my eyes just as I did the night of his accident when I walked into the bathroom to find him almost dead. I couldn't take the first shot if I was looking. But just as I was about to pull the trigger, I felt something. Not guilt or fear of being captured. I felt dizzy. I pulled my hand away from my eyes to see the world ripple in a wave that spread out from Al's body. Everything changed in that moment. My gun and military uniform disappeared. The bathroom of the mansion dematerialized and rematerialized into the bathroom of our home in Denver. And the fully grown tyrant changed into a little boy. But he stayed face down in the tub. Somehow, we were back at the night of his accident. Of course, immediately, I sprang into action. It had all been a hallucination, and my own flesh and blood was about to expire before my eyes. But then I noticed the tap was off. I saw a disturbance in front of the tub where I had laid him down to start first aid, and there was a pattern of water and dryness that was about the size and shape of a young boy flat on his back with a grown man perched beside him. I realized that it wasn't a hallucination. Fuck, it was all real. I'd been given a vision into his future, into the future of the world. It had all happened. And it would all happen again if I acted any further. My choice was made. I kept eyes on Al as I backed out of the bathroom and shut the door on this awful scene. I made my way back to the living room, turned the TV volume up a few clicks, picked up my tea, and sat back down. I must have actually fallen asleep this time. When I woke up, it was light outside. The sitcom reruns had ended, and now the 10 o'clock weather was playing on the TV station. Hoping that it was all a dream, and that Al had just put himself to bed, I got up. Again, for the third time, I made my way to the bathroom. The door was closed. A strict violation of household rules, unless it was in use. So I knocked, but I received no answer. I opened the door and set my eyes on the same scene as the night before. Al was dead in the tub. There was no questioning it this time. It was not a dream. It was not a hallucination. It was just a cold fact. Fortunately, this time I did not need to be sure. He was still, and he was blue and purple all over. So I called police and medical. They came, they investigated, and now I'm here. 
neglect leading to the death of a minor in the care of a trusted adult. Or something like that, I believe is what I'm being charged with. I can live with that given the hell that I've foreseen. I, Rodney Strickland, attest that this confession is sincere and uncoerced. I realize that it will be used against me in a court of law, and I do fully understand the seriousness and levity of my crimes. Good enough, detective. You would have done the same thing in my position. Knowing what I know, seeing what I've seen, divine intervention allowed this world a second chance. I don't expect the same treatment from the courts. Now I'm done talking. Please turn that recorder off. Good thing I have cats and not kids. The most I have to worry about is them accidentally opening a portal to hell. Special thanks to Tim Ryan, as the story was co-written by him and Philip Clark. We'd like to thank you all for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again. The next episode will air in two weeks. Plus, it's time to start preparing for our special Christmas episode. More details about that later. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are many more stories from the Hidden Archives that have yet to be shared. We hope that you join us next time for another glimpse into the archives. This has been a production of the Rhodes Collaborative Experience, LLC. Please note reproduction, duplication, or bastardization of any content without written consent from RCX or its partners. Ex Animo, Ex Tempus, in Archivum. <laughs>